if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 8. We started a series last week called Family Values, and basically the idea behind this series is we're saying that, that we feel called by God to, as a church to be a certain way. And we, we don't apologize for that. We, we have a strong conviction that God wants us to be a certain way as a church and that there are certain things for which Restoration Life Church should be known in our community. And, and these values that we have lined out, they're not, you know, they're not every value that can possibly be, but these are some things that, that are important to us as a church. And we've, we've shown they're important with the way that we, uh, we act and the way we have lived as a church. And and so we just feel passionately about being obedient to Jesus in these areas. And, and the thing is, you know, like, like I said, there are all kinds of values, but we believe, we really believe that there's just one church of Jesus Christ in this city. And, that, and, uh, and, and it plays out in all kinds of different ways. Uh, like this morning, not only in the city, but all over this country, there are some people that are worshiping with electric guitars and drums, and there are other people that are worshiping with pipe organs and choirs but the thing is, they're both worshiping Jesus and they're both beautiful. It's not, one, one is, it's not that one is right and the other is wrong. They're both expressions of this beautiful Jesus of ours. So we're talking about the values that we believe our church must be built upon. And, what we'll, and we're going to continue to come back. These are, these are values we're going to keep coming back to for the next 30 or 40 years, should the Lord tarry. Uh, because uh, we believe God has put it in our hearts to be these things. Remember, And that's a key thing. It's not about just what we do, it's about who we are. And, and uh, so we, we talked last week, we, we began last week with prayer, and we talked about why prayer is so important, and we also talked a little bit about why we tend to struggle with praying consistently, and, uh, and then we talked about what we're really praying when we pray according to the pattern that Jesus gave us uh, for prayer, what's known to many of us as the Lord's Prayer. Today we're going to be talking about, about truth. And this is what we believe about this. This is our value. We value speaking the truth of the gospel filled with grace and mercy, filled with the grace and mercy that we found in Jesus. And we, and we value also, part of that is living out that truth in our lives missionally. Uh, it's not enough to know the truth. It's not enough to speak the truth. We have to speak it with grace and we have to live it out in our lives. It's a combination of all those things. And so uh, here's the thing. Uh, if we all jumped into our cars and headed to the mall or, you know, some place where there's lots of people that are gathered. And if you just went there and you started asking, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We would get a lot of different answers, wouldn't we? Some would say, oh, he's just he's a great prophet. Some would say he was a great teacher. Some because we're here in the in the Bible Belt there, you'd get a lot of people saying, well, he's my my Lord and Savior, and, and others might be just say, well, he's just a myth, he's nobody. There's this huge diversity of thought on who this man Jesus is. But, but here's what I want you to know. We're going to explore this just a little bit, but this is not just a 2023 question. This is an always question. There, there has always been a great debate about who this man is, whether he's just a mere man or, or a great teacher or whether he's God or... I mean, even, even while he walked on this earth, there were these huge debates over who he is and who, uh, who he's not. And I want to show you that from Scripture, and then I want to show you who he says he is, and then we're going to just go from there. 
So, in the 8th chapter of John, I mentioned if you've turned there already, Jesus is talking to people about truth. He's talking about how truth will set you free. And he's given this message, this sermon, if you will. And he, and he teaches them. And when he finishes this whole spiel on what truth is, there was some men there who were the religious leaders of the time, Pharisees and Sadducees. And, and they, they came and they asked Jesus really a, a kind of a trick question, a tricky question anyway. And, and it's really a question that was designed to be an insult. Anybody ever been asked a question? That you, you, you heard the question, you're like, you know, that was really not a question. That was just a jab at me. Anybody ever have a question like that? Okay, just want to make sure that this is what they said. This is the question they asked in John 8, 48. The Jews answered him after he finished his teaching. They said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> what, a, what a question is that? What kind of, first of all, the way they word it, it's like hard to figure out how to answer that. Are, are we not right in saying that you, have a Samar- that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And so, first of all, it's really, really, really uh, worded oddly because you're like, okay, now should I say yes then, or should I say no? I don't know how to answer this. But, but when they use that word Samaritan in there, we need to understand something. It was being used as a racial slur because the Jews hated the Samaritans. They viewed them as half-breeds. They viewed them as idol worshipers. There was a real hatred between the two groups. And, and so for, for uh, uh, the Jews to be looking at Jesus, who was a Jewish man, and say, Aren't we, are, are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan? That is the equivalent of using a racial slur in our culture today. And, and, and there's weight behind this. This is a very, it's intended to get a rise out of him. They were to try to poke him a little bit and push his buttons. And, and then they said on top of that, in this question, they're implying that the, that the only reason that Jesus could do the miracles that he was doing was because he was possessed by a demon. I mean, how do you answer that question? You know, hey, is it not true that you are demon-possessed? I mean, how do you answer that question? I mean, that's not even a question that's designed to be answered. You know what I'm saying? It's almost rhetorical. It's really more of a jab at him. And, and, and so, but they're saying, hey, this is who we think you are. We think that you're a, you're a, 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 a half-breed. We think that you are possessed by a demon. So follow me here. The ruling religious elite say he has a demon. All right, we're going to hop around to the Gospels here in the first part, and then we're going to settle down in a couple of scriptures a little bit later on. But So now let's turn to Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. In this passage, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus has started his ministry, uh, and, and, and it's going just gung-ho. I mean, it is huge. There are miracles taking place. There are massive crowds that are coming to hear him. They're pressing in around him, and, and he's teaching with authority, and that authority is very attractive to the crowds. So there's this huge group of people following him, so much so that in this case, there are so many people crowded around him that he can't even eat a meal. That's how busy it is, how crazy it is around him. Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, what does it say? He is out of his mind. He is out of his mind. So, so follow me here. The ruling religious elite say he's demon-possessed. Then his family says what? He's crazy. 
His family shows up and says he's lost his mind, and, and which is, which is mind-blowing to me that, that after all they knew about him that they'd say that. Now turn over to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? So Jesus, here's what he's doing. He's asking the question. He's like, all right, guys, what's the word on the street about me? As you're walking through the marketplace, when you're, you know, running your camel through the automatic camel wash, what are men saying about who I am? Who do people say that I am? And his disciples answer him. In verse 14, he says, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now of that list the disciples gave, what do all of those men have in common? Anybody? All, I hear several answers and they're all right. But the big one I want to go for is they're all dead. <laughs> they're, they're not, oh, you could argue with Elijah, but they're, they're, they're gone from this earth, right? They're gone. So, so follow me here. The religious ruling elite, uh, they, they say that he has a demon. His family are saying he's crazy. The word on the street that he was like some kind of ghost, that he was some sort of prophet reincarnate. Now flip it over to Matthew 28. A lot of us know Matthew 28 because this is where we get the Great Commission. We find it there, but there's a verse that's right before the Great Commission that I don't know. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody preach a message on this passage because it's just very, it's just mind-blowing. It really is. But, but here's the story. We all know the story. Jesus was slaughtered on the cross. He, he is, comes back to life. And then he hangs out with the disciples, we know, for at least 40 days. And they are touching him. They're eating food with him. They're having these meals with him. He's teaching them. They're, they're ex experiencing life with him during those 40 days. But then look at verse 17. This is, this is right before Jesus gives the Great Commission and, and ascends into heaven. It says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. But look at those last words. But some doubted. I, I mean, some doubted. Re really? Are you serious? So first of all, I just want to say, give me a break with the whole, all right, show me a miracle and I'll believe thing. Because here it is, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And these, and these goofballs are saying, I don't know. Maybe he is, maybe he ain't. I don't know. You know? <laughs> I just picture them as being from the deep south somehow or something. I don't know. But, but, uh, but I, I mean, they saw him slaughtered on a cross. And three days later, he's alive again. And he's not like alive and all jacked up, you know, with stitches and a cast and all these things all over him. But he's alive, normal. And, and, he, and he even cooks breakfast, breakfast for them on the shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee. I mean, can you imagine? They, they saw him slaughtered just a few days earlier, and now he's cooking some fish for them. And his disciples doubt him after doing life with him for 40 days. So the ruling religious party, they say he has a demon. His family says that he's crazy. Word on the street that he's some kind of prophet that's come back from the dead. And his disciples, they're going, I don't know. I don't know. Now, I want to read one more, and this one's going to mess with your mind just a little bit. Now turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. This is talking about Jesus. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. In other words, the scribes, 
They, they didn't teach with any authority at all. They, if they had a teaching that contradicted anybody else, they said, well, you know, just take whatever, you know, I, this is what I believe, this is what they believe, whatever. But Jesus, he just taught with authority. He said, this is the way things are. He spoke with an authority. And then verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, a demon-possessed man. And, and he cried out, meaning the demon spoke through this man. He said, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent. Shut up. Stop talking. I don't want anybody to know that yet. And he said, and come out of him. So here's the thing. Of everyone involved, from his disciples to his family, uh, to, to, to uh, the religious ruling elite, all of these, the, the only one who actually gets it right is who? El Diablo, <laughs> you know. That's, it's a, that'll blow your mind there. So the ruling religious elite, says he ha they say he has a demon. His family says that he's crazy. Word on the street is he's some reincarnated prophet. His own disciples doubt who he is, but the devil is saying, Holy One of God. All right. Now that just kind of sets the stage because it shows that there's been a debate about who Jesus is since he was here, since he walked the face of this earth. One of the things I, that I promise to you is that I, I will preach and teach the scripture without apology. And that means sometimes there are going to be hard sermons to preach. And uh, what, what we're going to talk about this morning might be a hard one for, for many of us in this room. Today I have some, some things I need, to, to, need you to to walk with me through and not, don't turn me off when you hear something that may sound a little off, you know, in other words, don't put your rifle together till I get done, you know, um, but I, I'm going to challenge some popular views, especially some popular views about the Bible that have cost us relationship and they've cost us freedom. I promise you this though, I will do nothing that will bring scripture low this morning, nothing. My only hope is that we might learn to read the scripture and find Jesus. That's what we're go our goal is. So, all right. So, so maybe the way to get to the bottom of the question, who is Jesus, is not to look through other people's lenses, but to go to the source and see what he says about himself. Who did Jesus say he was? John 14, 6, very well-known scripture says this. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to Father except through me. Now he says three things here. He says, I am the way. He says, I am the truth. I am the life. Today, what we're doing is we're going to focus in on that middle one where Jesus said, I am the truth. Now that's a very, very profound statement because when, when you ask anybody, what is truth? which later on Pilate asked Jesus what is truth, which was ironic because Jesus had already said, I am the truth and he's standing in front of him. But, but when you ask anybody about what is truth, they're going to come up with all kinds of answers. And, and that's both inside and outside the church. But according to Jesus, truth is not a list of rights and wrongs to be mastered. And, and, and according to Jesus, truth is not a theological framework to be held but truth is a person. Now be patient with me because we're going to get to the theological framework. 
because it is important in understanding those ideas, but truth is a per person. Alistair McGrath wrote a book called Historical Theology, and in the book he traces some of the things that have happened to us historically as a church, you know, that, that we lost this cultural debate over Darwinism, we lost the cultural debate over evolution being taught in schools, and, and, and then all, when, Al when evangelicals lost that debate, all of a sudden, uh, this book, the Bible, became almost like a scientific novel or, or some sort of moral code book. And the idea was that if we could just figure it out, then, then we would find everything we need to be able to prove our faith logically. Now, trust. Now, first of all, I want to say, I believe that our faith is logical. I believe there's all kinds of reasons for that. But what we have done, we focused on that one side of it. And what has happened to so many of us is that we have, many of us have sacrificed the relational Jesus and his invitation to know him for a set of rules and regulations that will make much of us if we abide by them. See, that's the thing about rules and regulations. If I have a set of rules and regulations and I keep those rules and regulations, it really makes a big deal about me that I can keep the rules, all right? So we have sacrificed, many people have sacrificed the relational Jesus for this set of rules and regulations. We have reduced these sacred scriptures to a moral code book that we think if we just figure it out, we can prove things in a logical matter. In essence, we have taken the sacred scriptures written over a, a course of at least a thousand years by some 40 authors on three different continents in three different languages, which by the way, still agree with one another. And we have boiled them down to a combination lock. We have real issues in our lives and we, we try to unlock the scriptures much as we turn the numbers on a combination lock. And what we do, let me, let me, let me just preface it by this. What I'm saying is what we do is we go to the scriptures and we make them about us. We make them about, hey, this is, this, is, this is something that is all about me today. I'm going to talk about that. Now, there are, I don't, mis, don't misunderstand, the Holy Spirit will use the words from this to apply directly to your life. But the scripture, let me put it this way. You are not the star of the story. You know, you're not Tom Cruise in this one, right? Because, you know, he's like, anyway, He's had quite the career, hadn't he? So, so but, but we look at scriptures that way, and we've turned it into a, a combination lock where we have these issues in our lives, and we say, all right, let me go to the scripture, and let me try to figure out the combination to unlock what I want. So here's what we do. We're lonely. We're, we're frustrated. We're addicted. We're broken. Maybe we're bitter. We have real issues. We're struggling in life, and we do this. We say, hmm, Romans 8, uh, uh, Colossians 4, uh, Ecclesiastes 7. Oh, rats. Okay, maybe I need to start to the left or try some different combination. Jeremiah 29, specifically 11, uh, Hebrews 6, Psalm 139, and the lock won't open for us. Or to make matters even, even more confusing for us is that sometimes things seem, do seem to get better for us for a little while. 
And but then life gets really difficult again and we go back and we dial up the same combination of verses and this time that lock doesn't open. And, and then to make matters worth, worse, other, other people are, are more than happy to give you a, another combination, right? You say, oh, you got marriage problems? Oh, well, Ephesians 6, eh. Song of Solomon, anywhere in Song of Solomon, go there. And the next thing you know, you're sleeping on the sofa for the night, right? <laughs> this is how it goes. And, and, but let me ask you a question here about this. If I gave you this lock and I said to you, now it'd be easy right now because it's got the sticker on the back of the combination. But if I took that sticker off, if I gave this to you and I said, I, I want you to try to open this lock. Let me answer this question for me. How many times would you try before you just threw it down in frustration? Most of us probably wouldn't even give it one shot, right? But if you did, it wouldn't be very long. How long before you decided it was hopeless and just tossed the whole thing? Here's the thing. We have been trying to figure out for years in the, in the church why people are not reading the Bible anymore because they're just not. They're not in the scripture. They're not in the word. In fact, we get most of our theology from worship songs anymore. And not all worship songs are even biblical. I hate to tell you that. But, but, but many of us don't even know they're not biblical because we're not into the word. So we've been trying to figure out why people are not reading the Bible anymore. And, and what we've done, we tried to make it even more user friendly, you know. We've gone through the, down this road. Pretty soon it's going to, be, going to be nothing but pictures on a page. You know, it's going to be like, hmm. Ooh, pretty. You know, I mean, that's what it's going to be like. I mean, with our scripture, the way we interact with them. And, and, and still, though, even with all these resources and all the things we've done to make it as easy as possible for people, still with all of these resources available, with all of the translations we have available, so few people are really engaging the scriptures anymore. And I'm not even just talking about reading it every day. I'm talking about getting into it and engaging the scriptures, trying to not just take my time to read the scripture, but that, let the scripture read me. Really engage with it. We, we know it. We can see it. You, you come in and, you know, uh, that, that we, 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 you come in with your Bible and the edges are all turned up. You know what I'm talking about? So everybody in church knows that it sat on the dashboard of your car and the sun curled up the edges. And, and so we're all looking and we're like, mm, sinner. You know, that's a, you know, that's what we're doing. We know about what's happening. What's happening? Why are we not engaging the scripture? Could it be that we got tired of fiddling with the lock? Could it be that we've given up because all our problems haven't been solved by simply reading a combination of verses and us trying to figure out the right steps to be made? Here's the thing about reading the scripture. What if I can show you from scripture where we learn that we can read the Bible and still not be changed? Not only not be changed, but we can actually become hardened of heart. If I can show you that from Scripture and try, to, and try to answer some of this, then maybe we can find Jesus again in these sacred Scriptures. So turn to Mark chapter 12. The Sadducees here, which is a part of the ruling religious party, they, they, uh, they, they, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the supernatural at all. But they came and they asked Jesus this question in Mark chapter 12, verse 19. And this is quite the scenario. Teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's the, that's the Leverite, Leverite marriage. If you want to learn more about that, we actually are doing a Bible study. We just started on Ruth, and there's a lot of that in there. You can learn more about that whole deal if you want to. But verse 20, it says, There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, so here's their question. This lady marries seven different brothers and they keep dying, which I always thought to myself, if I was brother number seven, I'd be like, -uh. <laughs> no, not going to do it. But uh, anyway, she ends up marrying all seven of them. And this is, this is just the story. It's a made up story. This didn't really happen. But, 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 when all, but the question is this, when all of these people get to heaven and they're all sitting around the table in heaven, who is she sitting next to and is it awkward? That's the question, isn't it? Jesus answers them in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Here's what the Sadducees were guilty of here. Which, by the way, they knew the scripture. They, had, it, they had, had it, huge portions of it memorized. But Jesus said that. Here's what the Sadducees were guilty of, and, and probably what everybody in this room has been guilty of at some point in our lives as well. They went to the Scripture not to find the truth about the resurrection, but instead they went to the Scripture and, they, and set up a scenario to show that the resurrection doesn't make sense. They went to Scripture to try to prove what they already believed instead of going to the Scripture to find out what to believe. You see, that's what they were doing there? They're going to the Scripture and they're, and they're trying to pull things out and say, okay, listen, if we, if we go by, by what the Bible says there, if we take that literally, then, then this is a scenario that could happen and that makes no sense. And so uh, when we approach the Bible reading uh, our, our own Bible reading with, with our own ideas, our own agendas, and we try to prove our agenda by pulling verses out of Scripture, I'm here to tell you when we do that, we will not be changed. We will not be changed because we're not going to the Scripture to find truth. We're going to the Scripture to try to pull verses out to prove what we already believe. We see it all the time, not just in the church, but even outside the church. We, we often approach Scripture with all kinds of traditions. We approach Scripture with things that we've been taught by friends and or things that we've heard on Facebook that just sound right to us. And, and then we go to the Scripture to prove our point. So we'll pull out some obscure Old Testament passage or single lines of Scripture with no regard to the whole of Scripture and then we build theologies around them to prove some kind of political point or to prove our, our own agenda. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. One from history, one more recent. Here's an example that is in our history. It's, a, it's really it's a dark, horrific stain on Christian history. But, but 60 years ago, or slightly more than that, in, in pulpits all across the, across the South, there were men who used the Bible to teach 
that black people were inferior and that interracial marriage was sinful. And by the way, I'm just here to tell you right up front, I want to say in front of everybody, that's hogwash. I don't even know what hogwash is, but it's hogwash. I know it's not good. You got wash and hog together. It's not a good thing, but that's hogwash. You know, but what was going on? They didn't like uh, what was going on with the civil rights movement at the time. So they stood in pulpits and reached back into Old Testament passages where God said that we should not unite with them, but we're to be separate from them. But the truth is those scriptures were not about race at all. They were about religious purity. They were about adopting the belief system of somebody who didn't believe in God. These men were, what were they doing? They were simply using the Bible to make a case for something that they personally hated. Here's a more modern one. You see this all the time. There, there There are certain guys that will get on Facebook or TikTok or whatever, and they'll start talking about a, a, a current issue, you know, and they'll start saying, for example, here's, here's one that just comes to my mind. I, I've seen this one used mul- multiple times where they, they, they're talking about abortion. They say, no, it's not a human life until the first breath comes in. And they go through scripture and try to pull verse here, a verse there, and word here, and word there, and say, it's all about the breath. And that's when they become human. And they ignore everything else the scripture says about, about a baby being formed in a mother's womb. Uh, Psalm 139 is all about that. You got Jeremiah the prophet where, saying that, uh, uh, talking about being uh, 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 called by God in his womb. You've got Jesus talking about uh, er, er, when he was in the womb that, that there was uh, uh, Mary's son, John, who turned out to be John the Baptist, in the womb, it says the baby recognized Jesus there. You've got all these other scriptures, and, and, and there's the, they ignore what the meaning of the original Greek or Hebrew is, and they try to make a point. They're trying to prove what they believe and say, see, this is what the Bible says all along. Which, by the way, anytime somebody comes up with a brand new novel idea and say, oh, we have never understood this verse. In 2,000 years of Christianity, the Holy Spirit has not been able to communicate this to a single person in all of history. You need to be very suspicious of that, of that in the very beginning. But there, there are people who have agendas and they carry their agenda into the Bible and they find a verse or a line and they say, I'm right and this is what the Bible teaches. Here's the question. Are we pursuing the truth or are we pursuing our own preconceived ideas and agendas? Are we pursuing the truth or are we merely pursuing validation of what we have chosen to believe? We will not be changed by reading the Bible when we approach it as if the Bible is an end in itself. John chapter 5, verse 37 says, And the Father who sent me has borne himself witness, has, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And he's speaking, now this is Jesus talking, he's speaking to the religious leaders of the day. He said, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 39 is a verse that should be sobering to anybody that spends any time in the word. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. 
Another translation says, you search the scriptures in vain. This is an illustration of the danger of making scripture an end in itself instead of making the scripture a means to find Jesus. The Pharisees, they, they had all memorized the first five books of the Bible. Anybody here have the first five books of the Bible memorized? You see your hand, you know, nobody here, I would complete, anybody, you can quote all five books of the Bible. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Many, many of us, you know, we know a lot of it, but the Pharisees, they, they had to, in their religious training, they had to memorize those first five books. So they knew the word, but, but, the, but the word of God, all that they had memorized, all that they had studied, all that they knew, it all testified about Jesus And yet, when he's standing right in front of them, they didn't embrace him as a result of their study. So he said, you study the scriptures in vain because they're all pointing to me. I'm right here and you can't see it. So you've wasted your time studying the Bible if you don't don't see me in it. That's what he's saying. Jesus drew this line and he told them in verse 38 that memorizing scripture was very different than having the word abide in them. He told them in verse 39 that that they studied the scriptures in vain because they thought that in them they had life. But Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So they studied in vain because the scriptures was pointing to the one who was the truth, who, who was life, and they didn't receive him. They didn't see it. When Scripture becomes an end in itself, I can tell you this, the first thing to die is humility. If it, it, it becomes, if you don't believe like I believe, then you don't love Jesus the way I love Jesus. Can you see how self-inflating that is? No grace, no mercy, no compassion. The the scripture becomes something we use to just sort of hammer away at people. Instead of the Bible leading us to Jesus, it becomes a tool for self-validation or self-exaltation. And when scripture is an end in itself, then we lose patience, we lose kindness, we lose grace, and we lose compassion. And we tend to bash people with our theology, our take on, on the truth. Which, by the way, I just want to add this in here. And while we're talking about truth, there's all this this, uh, mishmash of people talk about. They say, well, this is your truth and my truth. No, no, no. That is your opinion and my opinion. There's only one truth. truth There is a truth that's in and of itself. There is such thing as as truth in this world. and, um, and, And those that say there isn't, you know, those that say there is no absolute truth, My question is always, well, is that absolutely true? Because you you cannot make a statement about truth without declaring that there is absolute truth. But suppose that that, that, uh, you could go through the Bible and you make note of every time it said do this and every time it said don't do that. And suppose... You were really, really extremely self-disciplined. And and that for the rest of your life, with utter perfection, you lived out that list. Here's the question. 
If you did that, would you have the life that Jesus said he came to bring? No. No. You know why? Because the end was never about behavior. The end is Jesus and life in him. Now, he'll change our behavior because he changed what's inside. But the end was never about controlling behavior. It was about transforming the heart. Instead of trying to find the code, instead of trying to boiling down the Bible into nothing more than a list of rules and regulations, what if, what if we started looking for Jesus in these pages? What if, what if we read the story of David and Goliath and we realized, you know, because here's what we do. A lot of us read the story and say, oh, well, I'm like David. I'm going to stand up against the giants. Well, really, in essence, David, you're not the star. David is Jesus in that story. He's the giant killer, not you. Now, there's, it plays out in our lives where he kills giants through you, that sort of thing. I understand that. There's a personal application. But what if we looked at the Bible? What if we read it and we said, how does this point to Jesus? How does this show me more about who God is? How does this show me more of the character of Christ? How does this point to him? What if we honestly read it, uh, taking note of, the, uh, of uh, that, that many, many times in the Bible, uh, uh, that the, the people who were following him had very difficult lives but, that, but yet we realize that God never abandoned his children. What if we began to see that, that part of his character? What if we stepped back and saw that some men had to pray a very, very, very long time before God answered their prayers, and he didn't always answer it the way that, he, that they asked him, that they wanted him to? Do you think then that we could stop trying to find the magic formula to make God immediately answer our prayers the way that we want him to, to answer them? And listen, if you think that I have said that the Bible is not essential, then you have misheard what I'm saying. If you think that I've said that it is not the inerrant, infallible Word of God, then you have not heard me correctly. If you think that I'm saying that the study of systematic theology is not important, you're wrong. I don't believe any of those things. I'm the opposite of those statements. If you, if you think that I've said reading your Bible isn't important, that all you have to do is simply love Jesus, then you have misheard what I've said. What I have said is the Bible is vital. It's critically important to us, but it's not an end of itself. It's not that, well, let me read my Bible and get my re Bible reading in today. It is about God's self-revelation of, of, uh, of himself and his character to us. And it's about looking into the scripture to say, how does this point me to Jesus? How can I find Jesus in this? The Bible is God's self-disclosure to us, but it was never meant to be an end in itself. It is meant to get us to Jesus. I wonder how many of us, if we were honest, we would admit that even though we know more about the Bible this year than last year, we would say we have less of Jesus. If that's where you are, then maybe it's time to reevaluate how you approach the truth of Scripture. How many would say that they have studied and figured out some theology, but they've lost the heart and the soul of it? Boy, I remember when I was in Bible college, that happened to me. I got to where I'm in. I, I knew theology. I studied it, and I could, I could debate the different viewpoints and that sort of thing, but in the midst of it all, I, I had lost the love and the grace of Jesus and all of that. It was all about well, this is right theology, that's wrong theology. You know, at Restoration Life Church, we want to be people of the truth. 
capital T. We want to find Jesus. We want to be set free. You know, I love the Jesus of this book. I do. He, he is direct, but with such grace. He is controversial and frustrating, yet at the same time patient, loving, and kind. And, and you know what I love most is that he tends to love people like us. You know, how many of us are, are, are just like Peter, you know, who, who just never seem to get it right? And the one time he did get it right, you know, we know the great confession when Jesus said, we read it earlier, whom do men say that I am? What's the word on the street? And Peter, he, he eventually said, well, who do you say I am? And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus is like, blessed are you, Simon. You, God has revealed this to you. And, and it is high moment. All of a sudden on the heels of that, he's thinking pretty good about himself. And, and then like five verses later or something, uh, Jesus began talking about his crucifixion and the suffering. And Peter's like, Lord, don't talk like that. And, and then Jesus turns around to him after this high moment and says, get behind me, Satan. Stop talking, devil. I mean, Peter just never seemed to get it quite right. He was consistently rebuked. And, and, and seeing his life and looking at the wonderful patience that God bestowed on him, that should give us some hope for our lives. But let us be people of grace and mercy and truth. And here's what I want to do. We're going to close with this. I want to give you some homework to do. Some of you already, as soon as you hear that word, you just it's tuned out. Uh, so, uh, but try to tune back in. I want to give you some homework to do. Here's all I want you to do. This week, and everybody here can do this. I want you to read the book of John. Read the book of John. But before you do, Approach it, try to remove preconceived ideas out of your mind, but just read it slowly and read it with purpose. And as you read it, will you answer some questions? Answer some of these questions. As you read the book of John, what is Jesus like? It's telling you what he's like. So, so take some time. Maybe write it out. What is Jesus like? Here's another question. What's his message? What is it that he's trying to say? What, is, what message is he trying to get across through the, the way he lived and the words that he said? Here's a good one to ask. Who did he like to hang out with? Read the book of John and ask, who did he like to hang out with? And then, then start looking at your own life and say, okay, am I like those people? Or am I more like the Pharisees that just aggravated him to death because that's really the next question does does anything get on his nerves or make him angry what is it that pushed jesus's buttons and if, when we find it we say okay do i have any of that in me here's here's a good one what is his tone what is his tone because you'll notice he has a different tone when he's talking with the the you know the woman taken in adultery for example than he does when he's speaking to a proud religious Pharisee. What's his tone? Then the last question, how does he respond to the hurting people around him? How does he respond to the hurting people around him? Because you know what, when we, when we answer that question, a lot of us, myself included, we're gonna, we're gonna look at ourselves and say, hmm, maybe I've got some growing to do here. But let's read through the book of John together. And let's see if we can't discover Jesus all over again.
Let's see if we can't get reconnected with Him. Then when, when we start to read other parts of Scripture, we can then begin to ask what it reveals about the character of, Jesus, of God. How, how does this point to Jesus? Because when we do that, the more it lifts up Jesus, the more freedom we're going to find in Him. You know what? The Bible gets a lot more exciting when we stop looking for the codes. When we stop trying to find the combination, it gets a lot more exciting. Scripture comes alive when we stop trying to find a combination that fixes our problems. And instead, we just find Jesus. Now, this is going to be a hard assignment for, for a lot of us because, honestly, it's easier to look for a code, even, even though that code has never brought life to anybody, than it is to look for Jesus. But let's not be people who can give all the right answers, but have lost touch with Jesus. Let it not be said of us that we're like the Pharisees who studied in vain because the truth, Jesus, is not abiding in us. Instead, may we, with God's help, be authentic disciples of Jesus who are passionate about truth and have the Word of God abiding in us. And we speak that truth with grace and live it out for the world to see. May we know Jesus, the truth that sets men free. Amen. Would you bow your head? Father, we come to you and we thank you for, for the truth that there is a solid foundation. That it's not like trying to build a house on a, on a, on, on a, on a sand that, that's affected by the tides of the, of the ocean. But there is a solid foundation that does not move, does not shift, does not change. And because of that, God, it gives us stability. It gives us confidence. It gives us assurance. And Lord, as we, as we approach you, we realize, God, that truth is not about a bunch of rules and regulations. Truth is not about even a theological framework. Truth is Jesus. That who you are defines what truth is. And Lord, I pray you'd help us this week, specifically as we read through the book of John, I pray, God, that you'd help us to get, begin to get reconnected with that, that we begin to find Jesus in the Scripture and, and not make it all about what combination is going to make me feel better today, but it would really be about, Lord, help me to, help me to see Jesus in this, in this book today. Help me to find you. Help me to, to connect with you. Help me to to experience your presence in a new way. Help me to learn more about who you are, Lord God. And as I learn about who you are, then you can shape me and make me more into the image of Christ. So Lord, I just pray you'd help us to approach your word, and approach the whole idea of truth as realizing that it's, that it's all about you. It's all about you. And I thank you for that solid foundation that we have. And I pray God that you'd help us to let that truth abide in our hearts, to live there, to dwell there, to take root there. And with heads bowed and eyes closed and there's nobody looking around, I don't, I don't know where anybody is, their relationship with Jesus or anything, but I, I do know this, I do know he loves you. And if, if you found yourself, find yourself in the position where I was years ago when I realized that I'd studied so much and I knew so much of the truth and I knew the theology and I had it all down, but I'd lost touch with the love and the grace of Jesus. And maybe today is the day you need to go to him and say, Lord, 
Soften my heart. Give me grace again. Help me to help me to, to understand your grace toward me because when I understand your grace toward me, I can give it to others. And then maybe others, you've, you've approached your Bible reading as nothing more than just saying, okay, well, let me just get it done, get it checked off the list. Or maybe you've approached your Bible reading as, as, uh, as well, let me find something in here for me that it's all about me. And, and uh, listen, don't misunderstand. Because when you find Jesus, you will be changed. You'll find what you need in there. But you've made it, maybe you've made it about you instead of made it about him. Today's the day you can change. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to close and I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. But I'm just going to ask you to join with me, to covenant with me, and just this week, you'll say, Pastor Dave, I'm going to join with you. I'm going to read the book of John, and I'm going to ask those questions, and I'm going to find Jesus. And if you'll do that with me, would you just slip your hand up right where you are? Yeah, all over the place, all over the place, almost everybody, just about everybody. Lord, I thank you, because God, I know that when we engage your word in this way, it's, it's life-changing. So God, I pray you'd help us to get reconnected with Jesus as we read through the book of John this week, and as we, as we rediscover who you are, Jesus, I pray that that would change our lives. That we would be people of truth who speak the truth and the grace and mercy we found in you. And that we would live that truth out in the world around us. And we give you praise. And Lord, I pray that as we prepare to leave this place, that you would just go before us. Help us to walk in your grace. Help us to be people who truly, genuinely love people, but we love them so much that we will speak the truth. And I pray, God, that you would lead us and guide us into conversations, situations, whatever it may be, God. And help us, Lord Jesus, to honor you in everything we say and do. And we give you praise in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.